Hello friends, this is your host Prashant Daniel and welcome to Ratio Vero, a podcast where we examine and analyze cultural and worldview issues from a Judeo-Christian perspective, more specifically through the lens of theology and apologetics. I want to welcome you guys uh, back this week um, and we have been working through a series on reasons why the Christian church is apathetic to the Great Commission. Now, I want to begin by uh, doing a small recap of uh, what we covered last week, which was the privatization of faith. And under that, we specifically addressed two points, the politicization of belief and the personalization of belief. Under politicization, we talked about how there were monumental sociocultural and political forces at work in our culture that amplified secularization and simultaneously marginalized religious influence in society. We talked about how loud and vocal personalities and organizations became more militant in their radical secular views, while the church and Christian community at large became complacent in its comfort and receded into the shadows. Under personalization, we talked about how, while the cultural landscape was changing rapidly around us, the spiritual landscape was also going through some problematic changes within the Christian church. We talked about how Western evangelical churches began emphasizing the need for a highly personalized spiritual relationship that essentially shrunk the Christian's sphere of influence from being communal and relational to being individual and isolated. And lastly, we ended with the biblical exhortation for the Christian church to remember to follow the words of Jesus and to be the salt of the earth, a city upon a hill, and a light to the world that shines as a beacon of truth and love to a dark and lost world. And the importance of remembering that regardless of any climactic changes outside or inside the walls of the church, we as followers of Jesus are called to be a proactive presence in the world that seeks to share the truth of the gospel. So today we come to the third reason why the Christian church is apathetic about the Great Commission. And we're calling this episode, Underestimating God's Agency. That is our topic for today, Underestimating God's Agency. Now, as usual, underneath that banner, we're going to have a few subpoints. And the first subpoint is, God uses people, not programs. See, the first step to realizing that the truth of the Christian gospel needs to reach the lost is to recognize that we are the primary agency that God uses to reach the lost. To understand the significance of this truth, let's go all the way back to Genesis 1 and see exactly what position and responsibility God gives humans. Look at Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our own image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. This is how the... 
NIV translation reads, when you read it in the ESV, the word used there is dominion. God gave humans dominion over everything he created. You see, the act of creation by God is certainly a remarkable feat, probably the most remarkable after you know, the justification and redemption of fallen human beings. But these verses give us a glimpse, not just into the act of creation, but rather into the doctrine of creation. There is a theology at work here, and it's amazing. God orchestrated the most magnificent act, the creation of the universe, along with the creation of time. He spoke everything, every element, every atom, compound, protein into existence. And then at the centerpiece of this magnificent creation, he placed his most exquisite creation, mankind. So essentially what God did was to create this glorious creation and then hand over the reins to his most prized creation. That's what the word dominion means. It means sovereignty or reign or rulership or absolute control. He does that when all the way at the beginning of everything, that was how humanity fit into his equation. Now, let's go in the other direction, all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelations. Look at Revelations chapter 3, 21, and then 22, verse 5. Verse 21, To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Verse 5, chapter 22, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. See, these passages are referring to believers. Look at what Jesus is saying about the believers who persevere till the end, that he will give them the right to sit with him on his throne. And look, that same word comes back again, reign, which means to rule, to subdue, to have dominion. You see that? So when you go all the way to the beginning of everything, God's plan was to give us dominion. And when you go all the way to the end after God has made all things new, God's plan is to once again give us dominion. He made us to rule. This doesn't mean that, you know, we become co-equal with him in essential value, but it does clearly mean that he has assigned for humanity a position of absolute prominence. But that's not all. Everything between Genesis and Revelation also operates on the same basis. Throughout the Old Testament, God keeps sending ordinary human beings as prophets to warn, to rebuke, to encourage people. He uses kings to bring about his sovereign will. He sends his son Jesus in human form to atone for humanity's sin. Jesus assigns the incredible blueprint for giving humanity, humanity the truth to 12 ordinary human beings. Ladies and gentlemen, do you see that through the masterful handiwork of God's creation, humanity is the central thread that runs through everything. Humanity was is and always will be God's primary agency through which he brings about his purposes. If that was his purpose at the beginning of time, and if that is his purpose at the end of this world and the beginning of his new creation, why would we assume that we can take a back seat when it comes to his plan to save a lost world? 
I think we so easily assume that evangelism is a special field that belongs to theologians, philosophers, or pastors. We assume that there are churches and organizations and special groups out there that do these things. We assume rightly that God can take his gospel to the world effortlessly and better than us if he chooses. That's true. He can. But he chose to use us. Despite all our deficiencies, insufficiencies, hang-ups, and brokenness, God still uses humans as his primary agency to enact change over everything else. This is why it's important to recognize that God uses persons, not programs. Okay, so let's move on to point number two. This is important, so let's please pay attention to this. Having a you-come versus we-go mentality. Ironically enough, a lot of evangelicals generally overlook the sovereignty of God, except when it comes to evangelism. We think that God's sovereignty will draw people to churches and toward Christians, and when that happens, they will hear the gospel. But this, of course, is far from the truth. While it is true that God is sovereign, and evangelism and discipleship is factored into His sovereignty— it doesn't change the fact that we are still God's primary agency through which he reaches the world. I remember this incident where this person we knew was really drifting in their life with bad decisions, just poor choices, generally headed in an unhealthy direction. I was talking to that person's mother about this and asked her if any of the family had intervened and addressed this person directly. I remember her saying, I just don't think he will respond to any of us. He just needs a radical encounter with God to convict him. Obviously, I tried to get more details and it soon became apparent to me that nobody had taken any serious practical measures to intervene in this person's life. Instead, there was all kinds of what I would call Christianese language that, you know, his spiritual blindness needed to be removed by God and that he just needed to meet God face to face and so forth. And pretty soon I realized what was happening here. His mom was basically implying that it was going to be up to God to do something supernatural because she had already decided that no human intervention was going to work despite not attempting any. Now, I want you to keep in mind that's the key phrase there, the, the, the end there, right? By when, when I said despite not attempting any. See, now there are situations obviously where, you know, even despite a lot of intervention and a lot of people helping and, you know, things like that, people will still sometimes choose to make bad choices and they will refuse to uh, be held accountable. They will, they will refuse to take advice or counsel from people who wish them well and care about them. And when they are determined to... Uh, to that extent, to do what they want to do, then you could, at that point, reasonably wash your hands and say, well, you know, I think we have tried everything from our end, and from here on, there's nothing we can do except allow God to intervene and do something. But oftentimes, um, that doesn't actually happen. Oftentimes, a lot of people are not willing to do the hard work. They're not willing to have the difficult conversations. They're not willing to really invest in intervening into this person's life and being an agency for strong change. So instead, what we do is we take some minimal attempt at trying to 
maybe initiate a conversation with this person. And when that person pushes back a little bit, we immediately step back and assume, well, they're not going to take any advice from us. So we might as well just allow God to take care of this. And so I see, this is why I think even when she said that he needed a radical face-to-face encounter with God, I think she wanted a Damascus Road experience for her son. See, because coming up with an intervention strategy and tactfully approaching the person and having a possibly difficult and emotional conversation with her son, diligently praying for him and with him, fasting for him and asking the Holy Spirit to lead her conversation, well, apparently all that was too much work. She just wanted God to show up in a brilliant flash of light, just like he did to the Apostle Paul, and dazzle her son into submission. Folks, This is spiritual laziness. There is a reason that God has given human beings his word so that they can read or be taught and come to a saving faith. Romans 10.4 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? You see what's going on here. There is a reason why Matthew 28 commends us to go. What is the implication here? I want to show you the undertone of Scripture. The implication is that the unbelieving world will not come because they don't realize they need to come. See, the person who is sick will not go to the hospital if they don't think they're sick. That would be like us standing around at the hospital, you know, like doctors and nurses kind of standing around and saying, well, why aren't they here yet? Don't they know they're sick and they need to come here to get better? I have, the med- I have the medicine. All they need to do is come. The problem with that is that it presumes that the sick know they are sick. That presumes that the lost know they are lost. And that is precisely what scripture is saying here, that the lost don't know that they are lost. Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. Let me bring you in on an uncomfortable truth, folks. I think sometimes we wrongly assume that the unbeliever out there is desperately seeking for God. We assume that because they don't know God, their lives are meaningless, that they live day to day without purpose, that there is no joy in their lives, and they just live in this hopeless desperation yearning for the truth of God. As someone from India Uh, which is a country with a population of 1.3 billion, I believe. Um, It's a a pretty crowded place. (laughs) It can get get pretty busy. Your, Your personal space around you is very, very small. And I have personally walked in the middle of, uh, in the middle of crowded streets like that in at least, you know, uh, 15 different countries, India being the worst of them, probably. And most of them very likely non-believers. Most of them very likely will be eternally separated from God. You know, even as I walk through those streets, I see these masses walking past me and I think to them, how many of these people know God? How many of these people know Jesus? How many of these people are going to come to a saving faith? Most likely, the majority of these people are going to be eternally separated from God. Almost all of them are blissfully ignorant about that reality. Now, I've had some people say, well, 
We're not sure, Prashant. I mean, how do you know that most of the people in the world are going to be eternally separated from God? You know, I I don't know that for sure, obviously, but I, I, I think that's the case because Scripture kind of gives us an indication. I can't recall off the top of my head, but I, I believe there's a Scripture that talks about narrow is the path to righteousness, right? Wide is the path to destruction. And it is a wide path. I believe, that allows for more people to go down that path. So I, I think, and just given the the, the number of uh, unevangelized out in the world, I do think it's a reasonable um, estimation to say that the majority of the people, by the time Jesus comes back, when all of this comes to an end, I think there will be a majority of the world that actually are eternally separated from God. And that's tragic. That's sad. But even from where we're sitting right now, the majority of them are blissfully ignorant about that reality. There is such a category called the happy pagan. These are people who don't know the truth of the gospel um, and by every external measure might seem like their lives are completely fulfilled and lack nothing. But they don't know that. But this idea that You know, unbelievers are seeking after God is fundamentally a false idea, not to mention an unbiblical one, right? Romans 3 talks about this, that no one in their natural state seeks after God. It is the redeemed, the ones already regenerated by God that continue to seek after God, or the ones whom God has already started working on to draw their attention to him. Thomas Aquinas, who was an early church father, had a good response to this question, right? He, he says, when you say that, you know, it seems to me like the average unbeliever is looking for peace or contentment or burden from guilt or for significance in their lives, that since these are things that only God can give, therefore they must be seeking after God. But Aquinas says, no, that's not, actually not true, because while the fallen, unregenerate man may be seeking the benefits that only God can give him, He is at the same time fleeing away from God himself. So the unbeliever out there is looking only for what he can get from God, but is actively opposed to any relationship with a transcendent God himself. And this is why we must fundamentally resist the idea that the lost will come to us, but rather we have a moral obligation to reach out to the lost, That's why we must resist the quote-unquote you-come mentality and instead adopt the we-go mentality. I have a lot more to say about this, but we are going to take a small break. As soon as we get back from that break, we will get right back into this topic. See you soon. All right, welcome back, uh, folks, and thank you for sticking with us as we discuss this topic today, which is titled Underestimating God's Agency, even as we examine reasons why the Christian church may be apathetic to the Great Commission. You know, we talked about a few things earlier. We talked about how God uses persons, not programs. We talked about, you know, being intentional and recognizing that we need to have a we-go perspective as opposed to a they-will-come-to-us perspective, okay? And I want to 
uh, I want to finish with this point that there needs to be urgent intervention. At the heart of our apathy with evangelism, if we're really honest with ourselves, is just a lack of urgency, right? Let's ask ourselves that honestly. Do we really wake up every morning with a sense of, oh man, you know, like what needs to happen today for someone to come to know the truth? What small part can I play today to save someone whose life needs intervention ASAP? Not next month, not next week, but right now. Whether it's a visit, a phone call, or even a prayer, have I done everything I can to show the world whatever truth I am capable of dispensing? Now, listen, I am not going to sit here and say that every morning I wake up that this is the thing, you know, this is the thing that comes to my mind first. No, it doesn't. But I think as Christians, every day, even as we spend time in devotions, even as we, um, you know, pray, I think it's important to get into a practice of asking God or petitioning God to, to number one, make us cognizant of the fact that as people who have the saving truth and saving faith, to ask God to make us available or to use us in some manner through the day to be precisely that, to be a light to the world, to be a salt of the earth, to be a city on a hill. And I think getting into a habit of doing that will automatically instill that sense of the, the destiny of the lost being front and center in our imagination. That's what I mean by that. That's why I think there needs to be a sense of evangelistic urgency at the forefront. So maybe some statistics might help bring this uh, front and center, okay? Here are some statistics I looked up. 55.3 million people die each year. 151,600 people die each day. 6,316 people die each hour. 105 people die each minute. That's 1.75 persons every second. This is the alarming question, though. What percentage of these people who are dying are believers? To the best of our estimate, According to reasonably reliable data sources, more than 2.9 billion people live in unreached parts of the world. That's almost half the world's population. But that factors in the reality that it is very highly unlikely that even those who claim to be Christians may not truly be Christian. So if you factor that in, the numbers are a lot higher. And just in the few minutes it took me to tell you that, a couple of hundred more people just entered eternity. Brothers and sisters, I want you to think about that. Almost two persons are entering eternity every second. But where are they going? Which eternal existence are they going to? Are they going to an eternity with the true and living God? Or are they going to an eternity of conscious torment separated from God? Do you see why the Christian church needs to urgently intervene? So what do we do? Some of you are sitting here thinking, okay, I get it. You convinced me. I need to do something. But what am I supposed to do as one person? I don't even know where to start. 
But those are good questions. And I can give you a short answer today and a, and a more detailed one maybe later. But here are some simple measures you can take. Start with the simple fact that God has blessed each and every one of you with a gift. So start with this point first. Number one, identify your gift. What are you good at? What's your strength? What do you love doing? I've heard people tell me on a few occasions that they're not really good at anything. I don't believe that. Everyone is good at something. Figure out what that is today. Go home, take a piece of paper, write down everything you're good at, everything you're strong at or enjoy doing. Now next, ask yourself, how can you use that to connect with someone, anyone, your neighbor, friend, sibling, cousin, niece, nephew, the clerk at your local store, anyone. You can do this in person or on the phone or even social media. Facebook is not bad. It just depends on how you use it. Connect with someone, strike up a conversation. That's it. You don't even have to get to the Christianity part. I'll give you specific tools on how to have those kinds of conversations here in another, in another episode. But for now, this is a good place to start. Three simple steps. Identify your strengths. Use that to connect with someone and strike up a conversation. That's it, folks. That's really it. You know, and the, the reason I'm, you know, you might be wondering, okay, well, this suddenly got very practical. Well, that's precisely the point is I don't want to have a conversation about something or I don't want to talk about something that's very abstract or theoretical. I actually want to give you practical tools that are going to help you do precisely these things. Three simple steps. A, identify your strengths. B, use that to connect with someone. And C, strike up a conversation. Now, you might be like, wait, that's not evangelism. We haven't talked about the gospel yet. I understand. And we'll get there. But for most people, doing even this much is a challenge. This is the easy part. Once you get this part down, we can deal with the content of that conversation in the next step. The bottom line is this, church. We cannot sit back and be passive. Eternity is at stake. Keep that number ticking in your head. Two persons every second. Where are they going? And what can we do? Well, let me end with that. And that will do it for this week. Uh, definitely make sure to stay tuned for the next episode in this series. If you're interested in getting more information on what I do or additional resources, please visit reasonabletruth.org. That is reasonabletruth.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please recommend it to your friends and family and encourage them to subscribe to it so they can stay up to date on all our latest content as well. Thank you once again for joining us for this episode of Ratio Vero. And until next time, God bless and have a great week.